Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with P.K. Adams about her latest mystery novel, Midnight Fire. In my last interview with her, we discussed her two-part series on the 12th century German musician, physician, and theologian Hildegard of Bingen. At the time, she mentioned that she planned a historical mystery series set in 16th century Poland-Lithuania. Because their time and place are very close to my own area of interest, I promised that we would talk again when the new series came out. In fact, the first book, Silent Water, appeared last year, and the second, Midnight Fire, has just been published. It opens with a journey. On the road to Krakow, early June 1545. We set out from Bari on a journey that we hoped would save our son's life toward the end of May in the year 1545. It was altogether different from the grand progress I had made 27 years earlier as a lady-in-waiting to the young Bonusforza, heiress to the duchies of Bari and Milan. She was on her way to Krakow to meet her new husband, Zygmunt, King of Poland and Grand Duke of Lithuania. We stopped in Venice to watch carnival festivities, stayed in Graz long enough for a hunt, and sojourned at the court in Vienna, where Emperor Maximilian treated us to a feast in a manner that befitted a future queen. At our final destination, we were greeted by cannons booming from the city walls, cheering crowds, and the entire Polish court awaiting us outside of Aval Cathedral. This time we rode in a simple carriage as part of a train of merchants, stopping overnight at travelers' inns, eating the watery stews they all seemed to offer, or our own provisions, or whatever unspoilt food we managed to buy in villages along the way. But I was glad of the swift pace, for each day brought us closer to the renowned physicians at Krakow, who might be able to help our ailing boy. Glancing at Giulio as we rattled over yet another rutted road, I shuddered to see how frail he appeared. The recurring fevers that afflicted him, starting when he turned four, had stunted his growth and weakened his limbs. He did not look like a boy of nine. How could he? He spent more time in bed than playing outdoors with other children. As a result, his skin had a pale, almost translucent quality, an effect only enhanced by his dark brown eyes with flecks of amber. Those eyes, so like his father's, glowed unnaturally large and bright in his thin face. My old friend Lucrezia Alifio, who still served as a lady-in-waiting to Queen Vona, insisted that the royal physicians in Poland could lessen his suffering, perhaps even cure him. Watching Giulio now, I hoped that this journey would prove her right, for none of the Italian doctors we consulted had succeeded in helping him. I also hoped that Lucrezia told the truth when she wrote that Her Majesty would be glad to see me and happy to help my family in our predicament. And now, please join me in welcoming P.K. Adams. Hi, P.K. I look forward to talking with you again. Hi, Carolyn. Thank you for inviting me back to your podcast. Listeners who would like to hear more about how you became a novelist and your earlier books can listen to our previous conversation by going to newbooksnetwork.com and searching for your pen name. Let's start by talking a bit about 16th century Poland, which I think is quite unfamiliar to most of our listeners, even though it's contemporaneous with the Tudor monarchs in England, the Italian Renaissance, and Medici France, all of which attract an avid reader community. What can you tell us about the situation at the Polish court at this time? Um, The Kingdom of Poland and Grand Duchy of Lithuania, which formed a single political entity ruled by the Jagiellonian dynasty, was one of the largest monarchies of 16th century Europe, not just in the East, but anywhere on the continent. 
Um, at its peak, the Jagiellonian realm stretched from the Black Sea to the Baltic, um, and its rulers were related by blood or marriage to all the other royal houses of Europe, in particularly the Habsburgs. The 16th century uh, was Poland's um, golden age, uh, culturally and politically, a time when it was one of the leading continental powers, experienced a flourishing renaissance of her own, and enjoyed a relatively peaceful existence supported by strategic alliances with France and the Ottoman Empire. Silent Water, which is the first book in this new series, uh, opens in 1525 with the arrival of Bona Sforza from Bari. Who was Bona and what brings her from Bari to Krakow? Uh, Bona Sforza was an Italian noblewoman born in 1494 to Gian Galazzo Sforza, the heir to the Duchy of Milan. Uh, because his father was assassinated when Gian Galazzo was only seven, his uncle, Ludovico Sforza, acted as regent and effectively wrested the power from his young nephew. Um, Gian Galazzo died in mysterious circumstances the same year that Bona was born, in 1494, and she moved with her mother, Isabella of Naples, to the city of Bari uh, in the south of Italy, uh, to be raised near her mother's family, who were the rulers of the Kingdom of Naples. Um, Isabella and later Bona never reconciled themselves to the loss of Milan, and for years they tried unsuccessfully uh, to regain the rights to the duchy. Um, but despite that failure, the Sforza and Aragon blood made Bona one of the most eligible young women in Europe when she came of age. Um, and so, in due course, her marriage to King Zygmunt I of Poland, known in English as Sigismund the Old, who, by the way, was 27 years her senior, uh, was arranged in 1517, at which point uh, Bona left Bari for Krakow, which was Poland's capital at the time. And she was crowned uh, the Queen of Poland in April 1518 at Babel Cathedral in Krakow. This uh, brings us to the heroine of both of these novels, uh, Caterina Sanseverino. Um, unlike Bona, she's a fictional character. Uh, give us a sense of her backstory, her personality, and how she comes to be in Bona's entourage. Caterina uh, is a minor noblewoman and a young widow from Bari, the city where Bona grew up. Uh, through her family's connection to Bona's mother's court, so the court of Isabella of Naples, um, Katerina secures a place in Bona's entourage when her marriage to King Zygmunt is, is concluded. Um, Katerina travels from Bari to Poland with the future queen and becomes her lady of the chamber. It's a high-level court position which entails direct service to the queen as well as um, being the supervisor of the queen's maids of honor. Um, from the start, Katerina finds this position difficult uh, because firstly, it's unexciting, and um, secondly, at the age of 28, she feels she's too close in age to the girls uh, she's supposed to uh, supervise. Um, in this role, she needs to be a disciplinarian first and foremost, but she finds herself sympathizing with the flirt flirtations and the adolescent dramas of these young noble women who know that the course of their lives will be charted for them by other people. Uh, by their families who will uh, choose husbands for them based on the benefit that these unions will bring rather than on affection. Um, Katerina fundamentally 
deplores this patriarchal system and as a result during her time as the lady of the queen's chamber she feels constantly out of place and inadequate to the task and she herself is escaping what she anticipates will be not even her first arranged marriage but another arranged marriage right yeah because she is a a young widow and um Essentially, at that time, for a woman, there were two paths uh, in life, either marriage or convent, right? So she knows that um, she basically has to figure out a way to avoid both. And um, and serving the queen in this high position is, is a way for her to make her her own way you know, in life. But if that fails, then she would have to go back home and um, accept another arranged marriage. So... So it's a so the the lady of the queen's chamber is a position that she is um, she's struggling with she's not happy with but at the same time it's a it's a it's a position that she really needs so there is that conflict as well. Before we move on to Midnight Fire, is there anything that you would like to share about this first novel in the series? I'm I'm, I'm not talking about spoilers, but um, maybe some of the setup. Silent Water, the first book in the series, uh, revolves around a series of deaths that occur at Vavel Castle in Krakow during uh, the Christmas season of 1519. Uh, The victims um, are courtiers who um, have seemingly nothing in common. And they come from different backgrounds, nationalities, they differ in age and and their lifestyle, so much so that, that the official investigators are stumped. Um, Queen Bona, who is famous for having many political enemies, has her own theory as to ho- who is responsible for these crimes. Um, she also, well, she's also perceptive enough to see that Katarina is not happy with her role. So one day she summons her um, and saying that she has more sense than most men at the court, uh, drafts her to help uh, find evidence that supports uh, the queen's suspicions. Uh, but when Katerina sets out to investigate, uh, with the help of a handsome young secretary from the king's household, I should add, um, she soon realizes that the clues point to the queen's inner circle and that Bona's own safety may be at risk. So as this is what I've heard from my introduction, uh, Midnight Fire opens 20 years later, in actually a little bit more than 20 years later, because as you mentioned, it's 1518. 25, yeah. Yeah, 25 mm-hmm. years later, right. Um, in 1545, and Katerina is again traveling to Poland with her husband Sebastian and their young son Giulio. Where have they been in the interim, and what brings them back to Poland? Um, after the events of that winter of 1519-1520, described in Silent Water, um, Katerina finally decides that court life is not for her. Um, she returns home to the south of Italy, and together with her new husband, uh, Sebastian, settles on her late father's much diminished estate, and they become almond farmers. Um, They have uh, three children together, one of whom dies in infancy, and when their youngest son, Giulio, uh, falls ill with a recurring fever that none of the local doctors seem to be able to cure, they decide um, to return to Poland to seek help from a royal physician at Queen Bona's court. So how does she feel about returning to Poland after two... 25 years away, what is she anticipating might happen? She is hopeful about finding a cure for Giulio, but she also dreads the memories um, uh, that that this journey um, may dredge up. 
um, the, the memories from of the events described in Silent Water. I don't think she would have returned to Poland had it not been for Julio's condition. But as a mother, she is willing to make that sacrifice and 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 put herself in a vulnerable position in order to um, save her son. So they go first to her husband's estate in Canary, but they soon visit Krakow, which is not far away and where they have family. Um, and they've no sooner arrived in the city than Katerina gives, receives news that she finds very shocking. What has happened? Um, on entering the city for, for the first time in 25 years, Katerina and Sebastian hear the mournful sound of, of church bells, and they learn that the queen has died. And so right off the bat, it seems that their plan um, is destined to fail even before they had a chance to set it in motion. Here, Zygmunt August uh, enters the story, and confusing as it is for the rest of us, uh, Poland at the time had two kings named Zygmunt, Zygmunt Stary, the old, the whom you mentioned, and his son, um, Zygmunt August. Uh, often they're both given as Sigismund or Sigismund Augustus um, in the Western sources. And they're both simultaneously king of Poland and Grand Duke of Lithuania. So for simplicity's sake, we'll refer to the father as the king and um, the son as the duke. Um, But give us some insight, please, into how the situation came about and also into the personality of Zygmunt August as Katerina perceives him. When the duke, Zygmunt August, was only nine years old, his mother, uh, Bona Sforza, decided to have him crowned king, even though his father was still alive, which is what led to this peculiar dual uh, kingship. Um, so so she, well, the, the reason she did that was basically because she wanted to ensure an uncontested succession, even though Zygmunt August's right to the throne was never in doubt. It was a move that was um, supposed to, and in fact did show the queen's power, but it earned her many enemies. Um, among the nobility who saw who saw it as usurping their authority to designate the new king. Um, Katerina meets uh, Duke Zygmunt August when he is 25 years old, already a king and a duke, as we said. And she quickly, quickly realizes, based on what she hears around the court and from her own observation, that he is spoiled, uh, used to luxuries and soft living and, and fond of women and entertainments. Um, it is a picture that will become more nuanced as the story progresses, but that is her first impression, and it does have some amount of truth to it. Uh, the person who has died early on is Elizabeth of Austria, uh, who was Zygmunt August's wife, and uh, he is, to be blunt, not too upset by this death, um, or at least he gives no sign of mourning. Uh, what's going on there? Uh, Zygmunt August was married to 18-year-old Elizabeth of Austria, as you said, who was a Habsburg princess in 1543, um, so two years before the start of Midnight Fire. Elizabeth dies in 1545, just as the story begins. Um, Zygmunt was not particularly upset by her death because uh, that marriage had been arranged for political purposes, and he did not love Elizabeth, a feeling that I suspect was mutual. Um, but that was also very common across the royal houses of Europe at the time, or indeed before and after the 16th century. So even though they're mother and son, um, Queen Bona and Zygmunt August are not getting along uh, at this point in their lives. Uh, what's the source of their conflict? 
Bona was always uh, very ambitious and interesting, interested in wielding power, which she did very well through <clears throat> through her husband, Zygmunt the Old, um, and later tried to do through her son when he came of age. But she met with resistance there, uh, especially after Zygmunt August uh, met and fell in love with Barbara Radzville, um, a minor noblewoman of, shall we say, a colorful reputation. Um, Soon he started talking about his desire to marry her. Uh, Bona was, of course, adamantly opposed to this union, and that led to a further and rapid deterioration of their already strained relationship. And how does all this lead to Katerina traveling to Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania? In Midnight Fire, Bona comes up with a plan to send Katerina to Vilnius to plead with Zygmunt August not to marry Barbara. Um, she would do so at the same time as she sought a consultation with Zygmunt's personal physician for Julio's fevers. And so Katerina ends up on this dual mission, which has profound consequences for her personally because of her son's health, um, as well as for the future of the monarchy. One of the advantages, if you could call it that, of her journey is that she is being sent um, with royal, a royal escort, basically. And she undertakes this journey with two companions, uh, Jakob Zaremba and the Marchesa del Vasto. Um, can you tell us anything about them as personalities and, as, and their role in the story? So Jakob Zaremba is a Polish knight designated by Queen Bona to protect Katarina and her son on the road journey in 16th century Poland or anywhere in Europe being quite dangerous uh, for travelers. So he was basically um, her man at arms, her, her, uh, her bodyguard on that journey. He's a few years older, uh, sorry, he's a few years younger than Katarina and um, has an air of mystery about him. Um, and given the precarious state of Katarina's marriage, uh, at that point, uh, she finds herself attracted to him, even though, of course, um, her primary focus is uh, her son and, and her mission for the queen. Uh, the Marquesa del Vasto, whose name is Maria, is Bona's distant cousin who provides Caterina with uh, female companionship on the journey. Maria is a, is a gossip and a chatterbox and uh, serves to provide context and information on uh, Barbara and Duke Zygmunt and the various goings-on at the Vilnius court. She's one of my favorite characters, actually. I really liked Maria. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of do, too. I had fun writing her. <laughs> so you mentioned the precarious state of Katerina's marriage. What, what has caused trouble between her and her husband? Julia's illness has put a strain on, on Katerina and, and Sebastian's marriage. From their interactions during the journey to Poland, we see that while uh, they share the same preoccupation and the same goal, which is to find a cure for Julio, um, they don't have uh, much time for each other anymore. Um, several times in the, in the early chapters, Katerina muses about the intimacy they have lost and about um, the fact that they no longer talk to each other the way that they did in the early days of their marriage, um, openly and honestly about everything, whether happy or sad. Um, in some ways, this journey um, and the next one that Katerina undertakes with Julio to Vilnius is a way for them to um, escape the, the quietly oppressive atmosphere in which their relationship um, seems to be stuck. So what does Katerina find when she gets to Vilnius? How does the court there differ from the one at Vavel Castle? 
The uh, Vilnius Court is younger, louder, and less formal than the one in Krakow. Uh, Zygmunt August has really freed himself from his mother's stifling influence, and he's, he's just living a, a pleasure-filled life alongside his mistress, Barbara. I'm not sure how much farther we can go without giving away too much. Um, what would you like our listeners to hear about the central mystery of Midnight Fire? As we already discussed, Katarina arrives in Vilnius on a mission to persuade Zygmunt August not to marry Barbara, but even before she has a chance to do so, a, a kitchen maid who serves Barbara um, dies of a poison that was clearly intended for the Duke's mistress. And so Katarina is uh, thrust in the middle of an investigation in which Queen Bona is the primary suspect. Um, Katarina doesn't believe that the Queen is capable of something like this, and she is determined to find evidence to exonerate her. However, she soon realizes that um, in trying to clear Bona's name, um, she may be putting her and, and Julio's lives in great danger. Are there any other characters that you think uh, listeners should know about? Did you want to tell us more about Barbara or her family, favorites of yours? Actually, my well, Barbara is a, is a fascinating character um, in herself. There are many biographies um, um, of her um, and and the relationship between her and Bona, uh, which I, I kind of try to uh, give a sense of in the story. Uh, but I think one of my favorite characters that um, we haven't talked about yet is actually Duke Zygmunt's Chamberlain, Piotr Opalinski. Um, he's a secondary character, but I think very interesting because um, he is privy to the deepest secrets of the powerful, but must remain discreet and, and hide his feelings and opinions behind you know, a, a mask of a diplomatic courtier, which I would imagine is extremely difficult to do. Um, and he is uh, Katerina's guide through the Vilnius court, um, kind of always in the shadows, but a very, very key uh, secondary character in the story who makes, uh, who really facilitates Katerina's work. Uh, he, he's a man she trusts the most, but so tangled is this mystery that even he doesn't escape suspicion at some point. Yeah, I liked him very much. Um, I think it might be worth mentioning because I'm sure a lot of people don't realize it. Although um, everybody uh, at the two courts treats Barbara as some kind of hanger-on or, you know, um, entirely inappropriate person, the main complaint against her is that by attracting Sigmund August's interest, she is getting in the way of another political marriage, which is a kind of, you know, and that's how political alliances were made in that time. But she's actually from a very high-ranking, probably the highest-ranking family in Lithuania itself. That's true, but but, but it is not a royal family. Uh, it's, a, it's an aristocratic family, but not a royal or a princely family. So that's one strike against her in, in Bona's book, who Bona being very mindful of, of proper hierarchies. Um, and the other thing about Barbara is that she had a bad reputation. I mean, <laughs> she definitely, she was no virginal figure, uh, which, which is what you, you know, what you ex what one expected from a, uh, a, a prospective queen at that time. She had been married before. She had many lovers. There were just wild stories circulating about her, um, uh, you know, and, and how she conduct, quote unquote, conducted herself. Uh, some of which probably were true, but I, I, I 
I believe many were also invented. So she, she, there was just an, an air of scandal hanging around Barbara. So, so for these two reasons, you know, she was not uh, uh, seen by, by Bona or, or many other high um, court officials uh, as, as um, the right material for a future queen. But Zygmunt was head over heels and would not be persuaded um, to part with her, which, you know, is kind of a is an endearing, I guess, aspect of his character that he could be that loyal to someone. And he was more loyal than, uh, say, Henry VIII. He didn't, you know, then execute her when he lost interest. <laughs> no, no, and no, and in fact, in fact, uh, and I, I write about this in the historical note to the to the book. Um, he actually, after she she died. He was heartbroken. Um, she died fairly young, and he lived many years afterward. You know, later for, for many more years after she died, and he was essentially in mourning for the rest of his life. He had uh, his private, the walls of his private apartment um, lined with uh, you know, black fabric, essentially, and and he dressed, you know, in mourning uh, attire. For the rest of his life, so he he was you know it it really must have been for him a very um, affectionate and deep uh, relationship, and you know certainly not anything that uh, Henry VIII experienced with any of his wives. So as it should be obvious by now that you're mixing historical figures and incidents with entirely fictional characters and stories, is it easier to write real people or imaginary ones? Well, it's easier to write real people because there is a wealth of of material about their personalities, habits, uh, even their own words to draw from. Um, but I think it's more fun to write imaginary ones because there's much less to be bound by. Um, you can take what you want from, from real characters from that period and add or subtract or embellish um, to create characters that are really yours. So while both are rewarding, um, I think it's more entertaining to write fictional characters. And in your plots, where do you draw the line between history and fiction? Because all historical novelists have to do that. I always stay within the bounds of uh, what's likely and believable. I don't want to create characters or situations that would not be consistent with the era in which they live. Uh, they have to act and, and think in the same way that people did in the 16th century, for example. Um, otherwise, they'll come across as um, too modern or too antiquated. Neither of these is a good thing. Um, I want even my fictional characters to be so authentic that, they, that the reader will forget that they are fictional. What would you like readers to take away from Silent Water and Midnight Fire? I'd like readers to know that the royal courts of 16th century Poland, Eastern Europe, and Russia were every bit as exciting, glamorous, and full of intrigue and drama as that of the, the Tudors in England, the Borgias in Italy, or, or the Medicis in France. I think it's time for a broadening of the scope of English language historical fiction beyond these fascinating, yes, but somewhat overdone settings. Do you already have plans for book three? I do, and I'm planning to start uh, working on it um, this fall. 
I should mention that, although we met during our first New Books in Historical Fiction interview, uh, you and I are now co-writing what we hope will become a mystery series of our own, set in 16th century Russia and Poland-Lithuania. Uh, would you like to tell readers anything about that? Um, sure. The Merchant's Tale is uh, is a historical adventure slash mystery slash romance uh, set, as you said, in 16th century Russia. It features uh, Tudor explorer Richard Chancellor on his first ever visit to Ivan the Terrible's court in Moscow. Uh, it was an accidental encounter after a part of uh, Chancellor's fleet was shipwrecked uh, in the White Sea while on its way to China. And um, it became highly consequential for Britain, uh, Russia, and indeed for all of Europe. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us, PK. It's uh, really been a pleasure talking with you again. Thanks so much, Carolyn. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm Sleepy Leslie, the host of New Books and Historical Fiction, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with PK Adams about Midnight Fire, her latest novel. Find out more about her at www.pkadams-author.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at NewBooksHistFic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplezzy.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.